Oftentimes, we hear the phrase, what type of a future are we leaving for the next generation? And what type of an example are we setting for them to follow? Well, when it comes to educational and social inequities in black America, the answer is we still have a lot of work to do. Going straight to the source and talking to the people who are living the experience and the experiment is often the most authentic way to recalibrate your focus and energy on this important topic. Because the young people are truly our future. As a result, I spent part of my weekend chatting with Jordan Davis. Jordan is an education speaker and graduate associate at the Center for New Designs and Learning and Scholarship at Georgetown University. Davis has also earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Communications from McDaniel College. He combines interpersonal communication skills and critical theory to to address issues in higher education, student success, and social justice. He has spoken on all of these issues as a TEDx speaker, and he joined me this week to discuss how we can eradicate these inequities in higher education for African-American students and other minorities. And finally, he also defined for him what it means to be black in America. Are you ready for an interesting and consequential discussion about education, race, and sports? If so, I'm Kevin McShann, and let's have this conversation. formally welcome you to the show and I'm excited to talk to you about your background in education and social justice. Great to see you this morning and happy Saturday, buddy. Yeah, thank you. Happy Saturday to you too. I'm ready to get started. Absolutely. So Jordan, tell me uh, tell me that you have a passion in uh, eradicating social inequities uh, for minorities in education. So I'm wondering if we can kick off our conversation by you just detailing that passion for me, buddy. Absolutely. So 
Um, I'll start by talking about how my passion for education started, and then I'll kind of connect the social justice aspect to it um, a little bit later in my story. But uh, for those who don't know, um, I was able to transform from a C and D student in high school to somebody who earned straight A's and, um, you know, excelled in public speaking. So public speaking really became my avenue and motivation for being successful in school. And I decided to use, uh, you know, my skills in public speaking to share, uh, you know, career development skills and, you know, advice for uh, academic success for students at the college level. Uh, but what I realized, especially later in my college career as a communication major, um, I started to take social justice oriented classes that kind of merged communication skills with social justice. So for example, I took a really transformative class called intercultural communication. And what I learned from that class is I was able to learn about um, just the general, you know, societal inequities that are faced by not only, you know, uh, black and brown communities, but also by the LGBTQIA plus community and uh, by those who identify as disabled. And I was able to connect the dots between, you know, some of the problems that I saw in education as far as, uh, you know, what leads to achievement gaps in education how those gaps are exacerbated by the, these, um, you know, these discriminatory practices that we see uh, based on race, based on gender, based on ability. So um, really that's where that passion came from was my experience in college taking social justice oriented classes, already being passionate about student success and student development. And that's definitely something uh, that I plan to expand on as I uh, you know, study higher education at Georgetown this upcoming fall. Well, first and foremost, I want to congratulate you for being accepted into Georgetown. It's a great school, and I'm assured that uh, your educational journey is just a beginning, but I so congratulations on uh, the next uh, uh, chapter of your educational career. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate that. And Jordan, as you know, I was born with um, cerebral palsy, uh, and you had mentioned uh, your passion for equality and equity for folks with uh, disabilities. And, you know, I live my life through a model, model that I've coined that inclusion is the gateway to independence. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on how we uh, foster more educational opportunities for folks with disabilities. Now, that's an excellent question, Kevin. Um, I think a lot of the reform that is happening in higher education right now is at the institutional level, right? So there's all of these policies being implemented to make sure that um, you know, those who identify as disabled are included. But I feel as though those efforts need to be expanded to the community level. So for example, if you put in place you know, policies or even certain scholarships for, um, you know, people who identify as disabled to take advantage of certain programming to help them become, uh, you know, to help them assimilate into these academic programs that they're engaging with. Um, you know, you those things might be successful. But on the other hand, uh, if you don't address some of the uh, discriminatory practices of your student body, right? If, if, you know, those who identify as disabled are not welcomed by the student body, if those who identify as disabled are not welcomed by, um, you know, community partners, you know, surrounding organizations that you might want to intern with, you know, things of that nature. So you have to really look at the entire, you know, education community and say, we're not only focused at 
on reform at the institutional level or at the college level, but we have to get all of our shareholders in education on board, meaning our students need to be, you know, well versed in making sure that they are including, uh, you know, those who identify as, as disabled in their everyday lives. We need to make sure that the surrounding organizations and stakeholders are doing the exact same thing in order for these individuals to be supported, uh, you know, not only in uh, the educational aspect, but of course, after graduation, when it comes to, you know, searching for jobs and really uh, being able to mobilize themselves after graduation. So. Yeah, you know, most of, uh, here in Canada, most of the uh, services for people with disabilities on a college or an educational level and at the end of high school. So I think it's very important to uh, foster uh, different ways of opportunity once you get to the college level for uh, people with disabilities. So I appreciate that. Uh, and Jordan, I also know that you're a motivational speaker and you have uh, uh, some experience speaking. So I I'm curious to get you to uh, decipher between the difference between gratification and fulfillment. Sure, Kevin, that's an excellent question. Um, I, I really do believe that the difference between gratification and fulfillment is that gratification is short term and it's something that's tangible. It's something that you can see and it's something that um, a lot of people want and desire when fulfillment is something that's more subconscious and fulfillment is also more long term. So fulfillment is something that I think a lot of people don't even really think about on the daily basis. Um, you know, when you ask somebody, you know, what fulfills them, that's a really hard question for a lot of people to answer. I think fulfillment is, again, something that's long term. It's, it's kind of um, a state of being, whereas gratification is a short term feeling that you have. Um, I know we throw around the term instant gratification, especially when we talk about uh, things like social media and especially in the fast paced the fast-paced technology age, um, a lot of people seek instant gratification. And I feel as though gratification, again, it's something that people desire. It's something that you can kind of put your hands on to say, okay, this is what gratifies me. This is what gratification looks like. But I feel like fulfillment is more long-term and it's something that um, it's kind of harder to piece together. And it's something that's subconscious. A lot of people don't even really think about um, what fulfills them in that way. Absolutely. And Jordan, you know, uh, well, growing up in America today, you watch the news and and certainly uh, the death of George Floyd and the political culture has certainly certainly redefined the way we define live, living black in America today. And as a young college student, I'm wondering your thoughts on what it means to live black in America today. Yeah, Kevin, I think um, and I think you'll definitely agree with a few of the responses that I give. I think to be a Black, specifically a Black man in America today, um, means a lot. It's a heavy load to carry. Uh, I think one of the things that we have to carry as Black men is that we are feared in our society, specifically in America and also in Canada, where you live as well. Um, you know, when we're walking down the street, we are um, arguably the most feared archetype there is, you know what I mean? And of course that comes from the history of generational trauma, of systemic racism, of, um, you know, overt interpersonal racism, um, and also the stereotypes that are placed on black men, that we are aggressive, that we are confrontational, um, that we, uh, you know, that we don't have feelings or we aren't able to, um, 
precisely express our feelings. And of course, all of those things are incorrect and it kind of puts us in a box as black men. Uh, but I think also with that fear that society has of black men, there's also power that we possess as black men. I think, um, you know, I could speak to myself personally as a black man, I feel as though I'm carrying the torch of all of the previous generations of strong, successful black men that came before me. Um, I think when you talk about, you know, white people, all white people have to do in America is to be successful is kind of maintaining the status quo, right? As long as they are, you know, the superior racial group, as long as they're the, you know, the superior gender, um, you know, if you're a white man in America, all you have to do is maintain what your what your forefathers did. Uh, but as a black man in America, I feel as though as I carry the torch, I have to constantly improve. I have to be an advocate uh, for those who, you know, might not be as privileged in that way. And I definitely have to carry the torch of those who came before me in order to see a lot of the um, social justice change, uh, social justice changes that are necessary in our society to come to fruition. Let's dive into that, uh, Jordan. I know, I know uh, that you're passionate in this area. So tell me, how do you find, uh, how do you define uh, full inclusion and diversity when it comes uh, to social justice? Yeah, so I think that there's a personal aspect to it. And I think there's also um, an economic aspect to it. You know, as America is a, um, you know, a capitalist individualist society. So I feel as though a lot of the social justice work that is put out in order for it to be approved by our institutions, there has to be some sort of economic gain to it, right? Um, and, you know, that's kind of the sad truth, but um, at the end of the day, I understand, and a lot of people understand where that comes from, just kind of the state of our society right now. Um, a lot of people don't know that, um, you know, yearly, we face a $956 billion deficit um, by not addressing racial inequities in higher education. And I said billion with the letter B, not million, $956 billion that we lose every single year. And, um, you know, for example, that, you know, large number is attributed to, um, you know, black talent or, you know, black and brown talent that is being turned away, um, you know, each and every year because of systemic issues or, you know, the, the lack of programming and resources for black and brown students that are just as talented as white and privileged students, uh, but don't have those, you know, career development resources like, you know, the internship experiences or the specific scholarships or even the connections that are made that white people are able to make more easily, um, you know, because of those uh, inequities that they aren't facing, right? So uh, there's definitely an economic aspect to it. And, um, you know, I always try to interject that when I talk about inclusion, because, um, like I said, a lot of the institutional change that happens around diversity and inclusion um, is usually mutually beneficial, right? So these institutions, if they are not incentivized to make the change, if they're not going to come out on the other end, you know, in a good spot, the change isn't going to be made. Um, so I, in, in this change does not only occur in education, right? I learned during my, um, my classes at McDaniel that in when you talk about um, black film, like the black film industry and black Hollywood, um, you know, black Hollywood use, loses uh, $30 billion a year. Like Hollywood in general loses $30 billion a year by underfunding black uh, films as opposed to, you know, white films, you know, films that are directed and produced by white directors and white creators. So, 
um, you can see this in virtually in every industry that you have that we have here in our society. And when you add all of those industries up, that's a trillion dollar loss that we're having, right? So there's definitely um, an economic and societal benefit to um, eradicating a lot of the social justice issues that we see. And then of course, on a personal level, um, if we want to be a happier society, right? If we want to um, have a society with less crime, with less poverty, with less um, you know, despair, um, you know, we need to be able to improve these things. And I feel like the first thing in addressing the personal aspect of it is making uh, privileged individuals, specifically white people, realize that social justice and inclusion will not come to fruition unless they are willing to defy systems that um, benefit them. So again, social justice will not take place until white people are uncomfortable, essentially, right? You have to be willing to give something up in order for uh, you know inclusion to be achieved. And again, even though you're giving something up in the short term, like I said, there's economic benefit, there's societal benefit, there's benefits um, to mental health when you don't have, um, you know, kind of a race war going on um, in our society. So there's all of these different benefits that are more long term that, you know, privileged communities can't really grasp. Like I said, they grasp to the short term benefits, that gratification that we talked about earlier, but they don't see the long term aspects of, um, you know, eradicating a lot of these uh, social inequities that we have in our society. And like I said, there's a uh, there's a personal element to it, but there's also an economic element to it that I think will really galvanize uh, people to make this change if they were aware of it. Yeah, thank you so very much for sharing that. And I wanted to uh, transition back to just education equality and equity and just uh, for a second, I'm wondering your thoughts on how we elevate the educational experience uh, for black America. Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin. Um, I'll, I'll answer that by two ways. Of course, there's dozens of ways and methods that we can use in order to, and it really should be used, you know, simultaneously and in cohesion in order to um, enhance the educational experiences of Black and Brown people. But I think the first step is um, getting people like us in positions to make the change. Um, and a lot of that comes with access, you know, it depends on who has access to education, because in order to be an education change maker, ironically, you have to have an education. Like if you don't have, you know, black and brown students that are graduating with a bachelor's degree within six years, if you don't have black and brown students that are graduating with a master's degree or even a PhD in higher in education administration or, um, you know, curriculum development, really these, these positions that explicitly determine the quality of education, like an administrative role, like a curriculum designer role, um, you know, these inequities are not going to be met. You know, it's one thing to instruct white people on how to change these systems to make them more, uh, you know, equitable and accessible to, to Black uh, to black and brown students, but there's a completely different scenario when you actually have um, a black and brown person in the role that has a hands-on, um, you know, role in changing those things. So, um, and I think that even trickles down to um, the educators, right? When we have more black and brown educators, students feel more inclined, they feel more motivated um, in order to, uh, you know, engage in their classes. And they also see a role model. I actually talked with 
um, an individual that I attended McDaniel College with. McDaniel College is the college that I attended uh, for my bachelor's degree. And uh, there was a there was a guy that I played football with that graduated uh, two years before I did. I ran into him at the gym the other day. And he's actually um, a teacher in one of the counties here in Maryland. And he was telling me that, you know, it makes my job a lot easier because the students can see themselves in me, you know. So it's really just it's, it, it's something small, but it's something so large at the same time. You know, when students are able to see, uh, you know, black and brown individuals in these roles as teachers, as principals, as administrators, or even behind the scenes as curriculum designers, knowing that the, the curriculum is being designed, um, you know, around their interests and around their experiences, these are all the changes that are really gonna make a difference. Uh, when you talk about, um, you know, improving the quality of education that black and brown people are experiencing. Representation matters, absolutely, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely, yes it does. So Jordan, I wanna have a little bit of fun with you, buddy. I know that we have uh, mutual passion for both sports and communications. Uh, as you know, I'm an old sports reporter and, and I know that you have a communications degree. So tell me, uh, what's, uh, captivating your attention in this uh, the sports landscape these days and how do you think your uh, communication background helps you now in the work you do yeah so that's definitely a twofold question um the thing that is most interesting to me right now that's happening in sports is the whole conversation around name image and likeness i know that legislation was just passed i think last week that allowed um, NCAA uh, Division One athletes and really all athletes um, in the NCAA in order to make money off of their name, image, and likeness. Um, and I think that's really a big step, but I think it's just a, I think it's a temporary Band-Aid on something that has a, a much larger, um, you know, issue. And I really feel as though um, when you talk to other people from like other countries about just the whole structure of the NCAA, about how, you know, college athletes make billions of dollars for these institutions and you have, you know, the coaches and the athletic directors making millions of dollars and players aren't seeing any of that money. It's hard for those individuals to grasp that because it is so ridiculous. And yes, players are now able to make money off of their name, image and likeness, but not the, that's not money that is automatically coming to them, right? That's just extra work that they have to do in the offseason. That's extra work that they have to do during the semester while they're in the middle of their season in order to make money, in order to make ends meet. And really it's only the top, you know, five to 10% of division one athletes that are really going to capitalize off of this and make um, an adequate amount of money. Um, I really feel as though the billions of dollars that are generated um, some of that should go directly to the college athletes. So college athletes shouldn't have to try to make money on the side, um, you know, in order to, uh, you know, be financially stable. And I say that because there's literally no other legal structure in America that allows unpaid labor in that way. So that would be like, me, that would be like me working at a company like Amazon, right? And me not getting paid for the work that I do. Amazon is a multi-billion dollar company and I'm working for Amazon day in and day out. And Amazon tells me, okay, Jordan, you, you're not going to get paid by me, but you can go make money somewhere else off of your, off of your name or something like that, right? You can go have speaking engagements on the side. So that is essentially what college athletes are going through right now. They're not getting a cut 
of the billions of dollars. And that's why um, I think the system is really flawed in that way, because the billions of dollars should not be reinvested into the into the um, athletic program that shouldn't be reinvested into the coaches salaries I think it really should be invested into the educational experiences of the students whether that be directly through scholarships whether that be direct payment uh, to athletes for all of the work that they do in order to make the product that is the NCAA um, and really to just um, you know enhance the overall educational experiences of students at the institution so the conversation around name image and likeness is really um, of interest to me and I definitely want to do a little bit more research over the next couple of weeks to see the developments that are being had in this area. Absolutely. And tell me, uh, Jordan, how do you think your communication background uh, forms the person you are today and the work that you do? Yeah, so um, obviously communicating is something that we do every single day. Um, I consider myself more of a public speaker than a motivational speaker because I feel like I have the uh, propensity to talk about so many different things. I don't want to put myself in the box and label myself as a as a motivator. You know, just speaking about motivation. Um, but I do believe that my communication background plays a role in the everyday experiences that I have with the people that are closest to me. Um, you know, when it talks to, when you talk about having difficult conversations about, you know, things like racial inequities in higher education, it is those communication skills that I have, you know, the listening skills that I have, um, the ability to articulate myself um, in a certain way that is not aggressive, it's not assertive, uh, being able to have the emotional intelligence that I use when I speak in order to have these difficult conversations, that really does lead to results from, uh, in you know, leads to productive conversations that I have. I think I've also improved my skills as an interviewer as well. I know, of course, you have a lot of experience interviewing and you know how, um, you know, how skillful that art is. You know, it's, it's a lot, it looks a lot easier than it actually is to sit down and interview somebody and ask them the right questions, come up with the right questions and really draw the most out of who you're talking to. So, uh, you know, I definitely see myself in the future, either starting some sort of podcast or some sort of forum where, um, you know, I'm asking individuals questions so that we can, you know, get answers from those individuals as well. Um, I don't just want to be a talking box, right? I want to be able to exercise all of the skills that I've learned through uh, throughout my undergraduate and now graduate career when it comes to communicating. And I think one of those aspects is also, um, you know, being a good journalist in my own right, being able to ask the right questions so that we can have the right answers to a lot of these issues that we have. Yeah, I tell you, if you ever start that podcast and you want to get us, I'm only an email away, buddy. Absolutely. You'll be one of my first guests. Whenever that happens, I will keep you in mind, I promise. And one, uh, well, I appreciate that. Uh, um, one piece of advice I'll give you about uh constructing questions is embrace the power of research buddy absolutely yep the, the, the power is definitely in the research for sure because if you have the research you have the knowledge to form the questions right yep yep so uh, jordan i know that uh you have a, a past as a college football player and how do you think your athletic past is help form some of the principles that you live your life by? Yeah, so the first things that come to mind when I talk about my college football career is that um, just football in general, because I've been playing football since the age of nine years old. So I've been playing, I've played from age nine to age 19. So I played football for 10 years. And through those 10 years, um, I've gotten skills in, you know, discipline, 
it's definitely developed my character. Um, it's taught me what delayed gratification means. I actually played a year and a half of college football and never played a single snap. You know, I was somebody who, you know, rode the bench, right? I was, I was seven deep on the depth chart. There were like seven guys at my position. I played strong safety in college. And, um, you know, that was a really competitive position and I had to work really hard, um, you know, just to stay on the team. So, um, you know, having that sort of delayed gratification, working towards something every single day um, and not expecting anything, but just making the most of the opportunities that you're granted on the daily basis um, is definitely a skill that I learned um, through football. But I think the most important thing that I learned from football is that I, I have limited control over my destiny, but the control that I have is still important. And for those who don't know, I actually quit playing football midway through my sophomore season. Um, that was a time that was really trying for me. Um, I was excelling academically as I, as I always had, uh, but I was suffering through, um, you know, a lot of anxiety um, and uh, depression, you know, a lot of stress that I was having, um, you know, at the time and football wasn't really serving me in any way. I didn't feel gratified or fulfilled from football. So I decided to uh, walk away from the sport um, in order to not only focus on my mental health, but at the time uh, to develop my public speaking business, which now today has led to, uh, you know, TEDx talks and, you know, being able to talk to clients from all over the world, really. So, um, you know, quitting football was one of the hardest decisions that I've ever made, but I definitely think that was one of the most important decisions and really the best decision I've ever made because I was able to walk away from something that had served me for so long and I was able to realize the exact moment where it was no longer serving me and I was able to walk away and really grow and develop as a person from making that difficult decision. Well, I tell you, that decision allowed us to have our conversation this morning. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I have to tell you, you talked about delayed gratification. I'm a Detroit Lions fan, buddy. So I have plenty of practice in that area, bud. Yes, you do. Yes. Oh, my God. Please, like, bless your heart. You are the definition of <laughs> delayed gratification as a Detroit Lions fan. So, well, Yeah, well, I've already come to the conclusion that they're not going to win anything of significance during my lifetime. But you get, Gotta live and die with the teams you ride with, right? I, I suppose. Um, I mean, you could have said the same thing about the Cleveland Browns a couple of years ago. So maybe you'll have, you know, a good draft coming up or something to turn around within the next five years or so. You never know. Um, you know, like I said, the Cleveland Browns, the Buffalo Bills, nobody knew the Bills were going to be this good a couple of years ago. So, you know, it just it ebbs and flows. But hopefully you all get some sort of, you know, team success soon, at least the playoffs. Yeah, I just got to make the playoffs or something. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I tell myself, Jordan, as a Lions fan every year, there's always next year. Always next year. Got to keep that mindset. Yeah. So tell me what, uh, when as a sports enthusiast, what are you uh, following? What What's uh, grabbing your interest these days in the world of sports? Yeah, definitely football and basketball. Um, I'm definitely locked in on the NBA Finals. As a lot of people have said, this has been one of the more entertaining uh, NBA playoffs that we've ever had, even with all the injuries that have taken place. And sidebar, speak, speaking of injuries, I actually just uh, endured a minor fracture in my 
foot a couple of days ago from playing basketball. And I thought about like all the other injuries that like NBA players have had. I joked with my mom earlier, uh, like like earlier yesterday morning, like if I was in the NBA like finals, like I could probably play, but it's probably not smart for me to do that because I'm not a professional basketball player. So I'm going to have to hang my basketball shoes up for a couple of weeks to let my to let my foot heal. But, um, you know, going back to basketball, like I said, I'm definitely locked in on the NBA finals. Um, I'm from Baltimore, so I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. So, um, um, you know, I'm looking forward to see what Lamar Jackson does, you know, former NFL MVP, looking forward to what he does this season as well. So. Uh, do you think the Ravens can win a Super Bowl with Lamar? Oh, I, undoubtedly. Um, you know, Lamar is the epitome of where the league is going as far as style of play. You know, you see guys like uh, you know, Patrick Mahomes running around. You see guys like Kyler Murray, you know, running around, you know, slinging the football. That's that's all Lamar's game. And I think, you know, J.K. Dobbins, our starting running back, um, who's heading into a second year, is going to have a breakout season. I think we have one of the best defenses in the NFL. Um, really, the only team in our way is the Kansas City Chiefs. So if we can get, uh, you know, a win on the Chiefs in the playoffs, I think we're, you know, we're destined to win the Super Bowl for sure. No love for the Browns or the Steelers in your own division? No, no love for the Browns or the Steelers, man. We, you know, those, those are always close games. So I always have, you know, respect for those teams. But at the end of the day, you know, we always figure out a way to make the playoffs. And usually, uh, you know, we have to beat one of those two teams in order to advance. And usually we do. So I'm not I'm not too worried about that. I'm worried about Patrick Mahomes and what the Kansas City Chiefs are going to do. So. Well, it's not worth nearly a billion dollars for nothing, right? Exactly, right. <laughs> so tell me, uh, Jordan, uh, when we look at the NBA Finals, I, I'm curious since you brought it up, uh, it is a more entertaining brand of basketball, but they tell me that the ratings are down. Do you think it's because of all the injuries in basketball and that uh, uh, there aren't sort of the marquee names in the Finals? Yeah, uh, yeah, Kevin, I think I think it's partly because of the injuries and just the matchup. Like if you're not like a locked in basketball fan, when you see the Phoenix Suns versus the Milwaukee Bucks, you're like, where do these teams come from? Like you're used to seeing like the Lakers and the Celtics and all of these different teams, uh, you know, even, uh, the, you know, the New York Knicks rings a name for uh, rings a bell for a lot of people. So for the casual basketball fan, the, you know, the casual sports fan isn't going to just, you know, lock into the finals if they really don't like basketball. I think another part to that contributes to the low ratings is also because outside is opening up, right? People don't want to be locked in the house on a Saturday night watching basketball. You know, they rather, be out you know you know with their friends or going to the you know to the club or you know bowling or doing whatever whatever people do on a Saturday night you know pre-COVID um, I think we're starting to get uh, at least a little bit more normalcy when it comes to people you know having fun and, and, and going out because of that so I don't think people are going to be glued to their couches watching the finals when they can be out um, you know partying and, and, and what have you so. Yeah, absolutely. And Jordan, they tell me that you have a special place in your hometown, in your heart for your hometown. So I'm wondering if you can tell me about that. Yeah, man. So I was born and raised in Baltimore County. Um, I've also spent a lot of time in Baltimore City. You know, I played um, youth tackle football in Baltimore City. My church is located in Baltimore City. So um, I really have a love for just the entire city of Baltimore. Um, 
like I said, I'm a lifelong Ravens fan. So that's definitely uh, kind of galvanized me as a Baltimorean. Um, and I'm glad to, you know, stay in the DMV because, like I said, I'll be moving to Arlington, Virginia uh, to start at Georgetown. So I'm not going to be very far at all. Uh, that definitely played a role in where I wanted to go for grad school. I definitely wanted to uh, to stay local. And um, I think I could call – I. I, I want to be able to call DC my permanent home. There's a lot of things that I love about DC um, as well. Uh, of course, Baltimore doesn't have a professional basketball team. So the Washington Wizards, I've been to several Washington Wizards games. So uh, I don't only have a love for Baltimore, but I also have just like a general love for the DMV, um, uh, you know, DC, Maryland, Virginia, this entire region as a whole. So. I'm curious, since you brought that up, who do you think the Wizards are going to hire as their next head coach, bud? Oh, um, that is a great question. Something tells me that it's either going to be Doc Rivers, because a lot of people are saying that Doc Rivers' time in Philadelphia is up, like even just after like one season. The Philadelphia 76ers with Joel Embiid were supposed to at least go to, you know, the, the conference finals, right? So the fact that the 76ers dropped off later puts Doc Rivers in kind of like the coaching carousel in the offseason. Um, and I also think like a lot of former players are getting opportunities uh, to be head coaches. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw, you know, a former player like uh, Chauncey Billups, for example, go from an assistant coach role um, with the Phoenix Suns, I believe he's with right now, to, you know, especially if they win the championship, uh, to go to being a head coach for, uh, you know, the Washington Wizards. So I can definitely see a former player, you know, filling that role. Yeah, you know, uh, Chauncey actually was just hired by Portland, Bon. So. Oh, really? Okay, as their head coach? Yeah, he's the new head coach, Bon. Oh, uh, that's super exciting. Okay, so Chauncey's off the market. So I guess we Chauncey's off looking. the list. So <laughs> you got to dip into the somewhere else but I'm also curious to ask you whether you think uh, the Wizards are going to keep uh, Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal buddy yeah so I think I don't know what they're going to do right but I believe that it's either going to be a full blow up of the team like they're going to do away with bro both Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook or they're going to try to keep the exact same nucleus of guys and try to run it back, maybe add an additional piece. So I think it's either going to be complete chaos and like, you know, blow up the team and start from scratch, or they're going to try to run it back. Cause you know, the wizards were a playoff team, like they were able to make the playoffs. So, um, you know, if you add an additional piece in the off season, if you keep, uh, you know, Westbrook and Beal, you know, DC isn't a bad place to live. You know, it's a pretty, it's a pretty exciting market to be in. So um, if we're able to get, you know, a high profile free agent in the, in the off season, then I think we'd be able to do some damage with our current team. So. Well, that depends on who they, uh, who they hire as head coach, right? That'll tell you a lot. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And tell me Jordan, if you, uh, I'm also wondering your thoughts on if you were given any thoughts to, what do you want your personal or a professional legacy to be defined by? Yeah, so when I first started JD Speaks, I actually create a I create I created a personal mission statement. And that statement is to honor a legacy of education and leadership development. And it's not until recently that I was able to reconnect with that statement. I feel like uh, the COVID-19 pandemic for me as for a lot of other people has 
really been uh, kind of mind changing and transformative as far as just the way that I think about work life balance, as far as the way that I think about, you know, my own business, my personal brand and how I want to be recognized and how I want to be remembered. If you were to ask me this question about a year and a half ago, I would probably say, you know, I want to be remembered as, you know, one of the top motivational speakers in the world. And I want to be able to travel and do all of these amazing, all of these amazing things. But I think now my mission is to simply just be an educator, to be a servant leader. You know, if I'm the top motivational speaker in Baltimore and I don't have any other accolades outside of that, that's completely fine with me. You know, I don't, I don't strive as much toward, you know, a status or, you know, a dollar amount as I did, you know, a year and a half ago. Now my focus is to just fulfill the mission statement that I set myself for myself, which is to honor a legacy of education and leadership development. Hopefully I'll be remembered as, you know, an educator, somebody who went out of their way to kind of teach individuals and to communicate with those, uh, you know, that might not understand some things and uh, to also be a recipient of education as well. Um, so really, that's just my goal. And of course, uh, hopefully I'll be able to do that after I graduate from Georgetown in a professional capacity. So, Absolutely. And I have to tell you, uh, per, a perspective is a powerful thing, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Even when a perspective changes unexpected, like a like a pandemic, you know, if it took a pandemic in order for me to change my perspective, then, you know, I could at least be able to say that out of all the chaos and um, devastation that came from it, there is also some silver lining in that as well. So 100 percent. And Jordan, finally, tell me if people want to get connected with you. I know there are a number of ways to do that. So I'm wondering if you could share those with me. Yeah, thank you for the alley-oop, Kevin. So uh, you all can find me on my uh, professional public speaking website, which is www.jdspeaks.com. Again, www.jdspeaks.com. You can find me on Instagram, at uh, jdspeaks. I'm really active on there. Um, not as active on YouTube, but if you look up JD Speaks on YouTube, uh, you can scroll through and probably be able to, uh, to find my YouTube channel. I post occasional videos um, on there as well. I know that this is orientation season. So if you're looking for some type of, you know, high school orientation speaker or a college orientation speaker or some type of, you know, program for your incoming students, I definitely think I'd be a great speaker for that. Um, and uh, last thing I'll add here, I've been uh, revitalizing my public speaking instructional model. So now I'm getting into providing talks on how to improve public speaking skills. So the public speaking instructional model that I've created myself, is called the writing design and performance model for public speaking. So if you're um, you know, a corporate professional or if you're um, an event organizer for businesses and you want to improve the public speaking skills um, of your team, then I would definitely be um, a great resource for that as well. So. Jordan, you've got a bright future ahead, and I'm thrilled that you accepted my invitation to spend a few minutes with me. And I have to tell you, I enjoyed our conversation about uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and social justice and education. And I want to thank you for taking my questions today. And by, by the way, I uh, followed you this morning on Instagram, by the way, so that's good. But I, I want to uh, thank you for taking my questions. It's most appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation as well. You take care and hopefully your Lions get something right this season. So, Well, you know, I'm not holding my breath on, on that, but thanks so much for that. <laughs> All right, sounds good. You take care.